Welcome to this special episode of Talking Constitutions. Today I'm talking to Colin Kidd, who is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews, about the Watergate break-in and subsequent cover-up. And we're doing this to mark the 50th anniversary of that event. So Colin, tell me what happened at Watergate in the summer of 1972. In, in the early hours uh, of June 17th, 1972, five burglars were caught at the Democratic uh, National Headquarters in the Watergate uh, building at Foggy Bottom in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, the burglars were four Cuban-Americans from Miami and a former CIA operative called James McCord, who was replacing bugging devices that had already been planted up a few weeks earlier by the burglars when they hadn't been caught in the in the Democratic National Offices. Almost immediately, the investigating authorities find uh, references to Howard Hunt, a former CIA operative who was connected to the White House, and also to uh, Gordon Liddy, who worked for an organisation um, whose acronym was CREEP, the Committee to Re-elect uh, the President. Because in this year, 1972, it was a presidential election year and the sitting president, Richard Nixon, the Republican, was running for re-election. And to begin with, it was all about containment of the story because the election predominated uh, at the time. So why then does it become such a great thing if it's initially all the news is about the election? I mean, it becomes such a big thing that every scandal now seems to have a gate suffix the scandal doesn't unravel right away. And in fact, I think um, it's fair to say that the cover up actually works in initial um, phase because the main the main aim of the of the cover up was 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 to contain the scandal until Nixon was safely reelected, which happens in, 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 in November. And, and the scandal doesn't really unravel till after that. So to, initially it's successful. And of course, um, we have to understand the, um, the the political context. One part of the Watergate scandal, because what Watergate isn't just one burglary. It's, it's a burglary that lets in daylight on a whole range of activities that have been organised out of uh, the White House including wiretapping and another burglary at the um, psychiatrist who was treating the um, Daniel Ellsberg, the, the leaker of the of the Pentagon Papers in 1971. And there were also other other shenanigans that included interference by the Republicans surreptitiously in the democratic primary process in 1972. And in effect, I think politically speaking, Richard Nixon's real crime was that he, in effect, through these shenanigans, helped to discredit some of the leading uh, democratic uh, contenders, such as, such as Ed Muskie. Uh, and instead, the Democrats went to the to the very liberal left and nominated George McGovern, who was absolutely the ideal candidate for Nixon to run against, because pretty much at that time McGovern was uh, unelectable, and 
Nixon proceeded to win 49 states, losing only Massachusetts and um, and the District of Columbia. So in that sense, containment worked. The media was fixated on the political story. And the political story was that Nixon was going to win. As soon as McGovern was the was the Democratic candidate, effectively from from the summer of um, of 1972, the press um, or the mainstream press were fixated only on the fact that Nixon was going to trounce McGovern. That's why it it, it was actually um, the very much the, the non mainstream um, political press in the form of. Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post. The Washington Post, of course, is mainstream, but Woodward and Bernstein were not on the the national desk. They were on the city desk. They were sort of local uh, reporters who who began to uncover uh, elements of the story. The, much of the mainstream media wasn't paying attention, and so Nixon achieved what he wanted, um, which was to was to keep the story largely. Uh, under wraps until the election was safely in the bag. And to some extent, some of the Watergate shenanigans were actually related to uh, Nixon's concerns about his re-election chances because he had been elected in 1968 with only 43% of the vote. His Democrat opponent, Hubert Humphrey, ran him very close in the popular vote, not in the electoral college vote, and a third candidate, George Wallace, a Southern segregationist, picked up five states and 46 electoral uh, votes. So Nixon was conscious that he he didn't have a secure mandate and and was worried uh, about the 72 election. Part of the part of the the background to Watergate is how Nixon conflates uh, Nixon and his team conflate uh, two issues. One is their concerns about about national security and how to prevent uh, leaks. And the second one is Nixon's anxiety about his re-election chances. And what, what Watergate is, is the revelation in due course of all of these different facets. It's it, it's a, the burglary is only one actually rather minor strand in Watergate that opens up, um, as it were, the proverbial can of worms. So, so Nixon gets re-elected. It's a fairly minor story. What changes? How does the momentum shift? Initially, as I say, there are the five uh, burglars and the two associates, uh, Liddy uh, and and Hunt, who are who are tried for the crime. At, at this point, they are effectively being being paid off to keep quiet and and basically to take the rap and not implicate higher ups. And that is the situation at the trial itself. Unfortunately uh, for Nixon, they go in front of a, a, a judge who is, in fact, um, a diehard Republican called John Sirica, who is whose nickname was Maximum John. And uh, he he basically um, imposes pretty hefty prison sentences on those those involved. And James McCord, who's the the eavesdropper among, among the Watergate burglars, he writes a letter to Sirica uh, saying that perjury was committed at the trial, that higher ups were involved. This letter that, 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 that McCord writes in the 
in the spring of 1973 really opens up um, the issue. Plus, the month before, in, in February uh, 73, Pat Gray, who's the acting director of the FBI, uh, in his confirmation hearings, lets out various um, secrets about how in the in the previous year he since the Watergate burglary he'd been keeping John Dean, who's the the White House counsel uh, to President Nixon, uh, informed of 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 the pro- progress of the investigation, uh, and so these these two things combined the the various uh, as it were inadvertent leaks that come through Gray's Senate hearings and McCord's revelations to to Sirica, they create pressure and a a Senate Watergate committee uh, is set up under Senator Sam Irvin to to investigate what went on. This creates um, increasing increasing, uh, pressure on the White House. uh, And uh, at the end of April 1973, the president's um, chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, his chief domestic advisor, uh, John Ehrlichman, and his uh, attorney general, Richard Kleindienst, all resign. And John Dean, the president's counsel, is is fired, um, partly because by this stage, Dean had uh, begun to, I mean, re- realising his own predicament, had basically gone over had 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 begun to parley uh, with 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 the prosecutors, and as a result of this, and especially of, of Kleindienst's resignation, the Attorney General, uh, Nixon appoints a new Attorney General, Elliot Richardson. But in his confirmation hearings, Richardson has to effectively agree to the appointment of a special prosecutor who will be at arm's length from the Department of Justice. And this is one of the themes of Watergate, is that um, it's the executive branch that prosecutes, that upholds the law. But how does the presidency, how does the executive branch uh, investigate itself? And what happens is that Elliot Richardson uh, appoints Archibald Cox as a special prosecutor to take over from the Department of Justice that, that um, had uh, been investigating this uh, as an as an in-house matter. Meanwhile, the the Senate Watergate Committee was having hearings into Watergate, and it was an absolute media sensation. It was televised throughout the day, and um, at at this stage, by the um, summer of 1973, when John Dean is is interviewed by the Senate Watergate Committee. It's estimated that 90 million out of an American population then of something like 212 million um, had seen all or part of Dean's testimony. This is an absolute media uh, sensation. And it beca- this sensation becomes even more sensational when in, in, in the summer of 1973, one of Nixon's aides, Alexander Butterfield, reveals that Nixon had been taping conversations, not only in the Oval Office, but in the, the other places where he worked, including the uh, his office in the executive office building uh, and so forth. And this meant that um, the testimony that John Dean had given, 
that implicated Nixon in the cover up and that Nixon denied there was now a way of testing whether Nixon was telling the truth or whether John Dean uh, was telling the truth. And from here on in, Watergate is essentially about whether those prosecuting the Watergate affair have access to uh, the tapes. Also, in the spring of 1973, other other elements of Watergate had, had, had come out, including the fact that there had been an earlier uh, burglary at um, a California psychiatrist, Lewis Fielding, uh, who was a psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, who in 1971 had leaked uh, the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. The, the Pentagon Papers are papers about Vietnam. Yes, the Pentagon Papers have got really have got nothing to do with the Nixon administration. It's a it's a study of America's involvement in Vietnam that largely concerns the the progress of Vietnam during the um, administrations of Kennedy and, and and Lyndon Baines Johnson. And so they're essentially um, not something that directly impinges on the Nixon administration, but at this point, Nixon is carrying out secret diplomacy with China and also with, with the Soviet Union to try to bring about um, a realignment of, of, of the superpowers. And he has he's actually done this in such a way that he has kept he's kept it all in the White House through his his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, and they've cut out of the loop effectively the Secretary of State, uh, William Rogers, and the Secretary of Defense, uh, Mel Laird, so much so that um, in an earlier phase of the water, I mean, of what became the Watergate scandal, the, jo- the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Moore, was using a naval, a junior naval uh, yeoman who worked in the uh, at the National Security Council to spy on the White House. And so actually this this sort of the skullduggery uh, involved in Watergate, it's not simply about the Republicans uh, playing dirty tricks on, 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 on the Democrats or breaking in uh, to the Democratic uh, headquarters. It also involves such a kind of a level of secrecy around Nixon's Nixon and Kissinger's secret diplomacy that, um, as I say, the the Pentagon doesn't actually have a clue what's going on in the White House, both with reference to uh, strategic uh, foreign policy and defence planning. A couple of minutes ago, you mentioned the famous tapes and the tapes you say are famous because they would provide definitive evidence about who is lying. But they also have a constitutional significance, don't they? And the constitutional significance of the tapes becomes central to the affair thereafter. So could you explain a bit about their constitutional significance? Yes. Well, what what Nixon claims is, is that basically there are matters of extreme confidentiality especially relating to national security, foreign policy and so forth in the discussions that he has with his advisors. And also there's the need for advisors to give honest advice uh, to the president. And if 
if matters that were on those tapes were released uh, for public consumption, then it would actually threaten the whole process of advice giving to uh, a president and and also it would affect the conduct of foreign policy and so forth. Because obviously uh, it's not just his own advisers who are in and out of the Oval Office, so too are foreign heads of state, dignitaries, ambassadors uh, and so forth. And so what Nixon invoked is executive privilege. He claims that basically the the president is entitled to have these confidential meetings and for the results of these meetings, the discussion, the matter of the discussion not to be revealed. And so this starts what in effect becomes a series of cases. Uh, First of all, the uh, special prosecutor Archibald Cox subpoenas uh, certain certain tapes and Nixon opposes uh, this. There's then a there's then a, case, a legal case in the um, uh, the D.C. appeals court, which in the autumn of, of 1973, Nixon loses. And so Nixon is faced with handing over uh, a set of tapes to Cox. And what happens at at this point is Nixon tries to come up with a compromise, what's called the Stennis Compromise, uh, whereby instead of handing over the tapes, the raw material to the special prosecutor, Nixon would give transcripts of the tapes and allow a neutral observer to listen to the tapes. And this person is a Democratic uh, senator from Mississippi called John Stennis. Stennis although sounding kind of neutral being a Democrat, is probably further to the right uh, than Nixon, being a, you know, a, southern, a southern Democrat. And but not only, not only that, Stennis was also notoriously hard of hearing. So it'd be hard to authenticate exactly what was being heard on the tapes relative to what he was seeing in, in the transcripts. The special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, he rejects the, the compromise. And on Saturday, uh, the 20th of October, 1973, Nixon carries out what is called the Saturday Night Massacre. Now, Nixon can't get rid of the special prosecutor directly. Only the attorney general can do that. But the attorney general, Elliot Richardson, had promised the special prosecutor full leeway to carry out his job. So Elliot Richardson resigns rather than fire the special prosecutor when ordered to by the president. His deputy, William Ruckelshaus, also resigns rather than carrying out the order, though though the presidency uh, initially says, the White House initially says that um, Ruckelshaus was fired rather than resigned. So the next person down the line is the Solicitor General, Robert Bork. And Bork basically, to avoid a kind of complete meltdown, uh, at the Department of Justice does the dirty deed somewhat under duress and fires Archibald Cox. Now, all this had been happening on a Saturday night, more or less on primetime television. The television schedules were changed to allow reporters to report as these developments were happening. So in the course of in the course of one evening, Nixon effectively lost two the two highest officials at the Department of Justice and the special prosecutor. It's probably the closest 
the US has ever come to a coup d'etat, much more like a, a coup d'etat than, than in fact the, um, the events of the, of the Trump insurrection uh, of last year. So the focus now is on the tapes and the avoidance of access to them. But the Nixon administration is under other problems as well, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess this is all part of the wider story. But at, at the same time that this is happening, Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, is also under investigation and is effectively he's he's effectively forced into 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 resignation. He, he pleads no low contendery. I do not you know, contest uh, a prosecution into uh, as what well, bribery and corruption, not only when he was governor of Maryland, but thereafter. I mean, he was still getting bribes when he was when he when he was vice president, uh, and so he is forced to resign as uh, as a penalty for this. And we're now under 25th Amendment procedures, which had just been brought in in 1967. What happens when you have a vacancy? Well, Nixon is allowed, as president, is allowed to nominate a vice presidential uh, candidate who then requires confirmation from both houses of, of Congress. And, 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 and he nominates Gerald Ford, who was a, a Republican congressman from, from Michigan. I should say that this is all happening at the more or less around the same time as the battle with Cox for the tapes. But once Nixon has has seen that that Cox is fired, there's a there's a huge backlash from the general public. The general public is utterly outraged by this. And uh, Nixon is effectively forced to appoint a second special prosecutor, uh, Leon Jaworski from Texas, who comes in and basically picks up where Cox has left had left off. So the the investigations continue and we have a continuing battle for the tapes, though there are certain matters, important constitutional matters uh, still to be resolved here. One is that is the executive branch what's known as a unitary executive. In other words, it's basically the president's responsibility. Therefore, when Jaworski is asking for the tapes and going to the court to, court to ask for, for further tapes, is, is this simply a, a dispute within uh, an organisation? It's, it's, it's an internal matter for the executive branch. It's not a matter for the courts um, at all. Uh, and what eventually transpires is that Nixon eventually goes to the Supreme Court. We have the case of U.S. versus Nixon, where Jaworski is asking for additional additional tapes. Uh, and what the Supreme Court rules is that Nixon is partly right. There is such a thing as executive privilege and the presidency is allowed to protect various conversations and documents and so forth. There is such a thing as executive privilege. But when it comes, it's not absolute. When it comes into conflict with with due process of law, then the president is forced to to surrender um, such materials. And the Supreme Court decision is 
it, it's a unanimous one. It's it, it's not a nine nothing because uh, William Rehnquist uh, wasn't involved in the decision. It was an eight zero decision. There's some ambiguity in it, but but effectively no daylight for the president with with respect to to the tapes. Now I ought to go back a little bit because there are other other important constitutional issues raised here. One is the president was was clearly involved in in the Watergate cover up, but there were doubts about whether a president could be indicted while in the course of his um, duties. And uh, one way the sorry, the Watergate prosecution got around this was naming Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. This is this is before the grand jury. This is something that was kept uh, quiet until until relatively uh, late in the day. But following the Saturday night massacre, there had also been pressure for an impeachment uh, process that the president should be uh, impeached. And so what you have as we go into 19, as we're in 1974, is that there's there's both beginnings of proceedings in the House Judiciary Committee uh, under the chairmanship of Pete Rodino that begins to lay out and discuss articles of impeachment, because is that not the route that should be that should be taken when dealing with presidential crimes and misdemeanors as as mentioned in, in in the constitution as well as this arm's length special prosecutorial investigation by leon jaworski and his team and so these proceedings are developing in in parallel there's some doubt about well about how this would end up because the president has a has a pardon power and could the president pardon himself? Yes, possibly he could, but not if he were impeached, uh, because th th there's um, an exclusion to the pardon power in case of impeachment. We've now got rather used to presidents being impeached, but was this fairly, was this have been much less familiar in 1974? Um, tell us a bit about the novelty of it and the process involved. Impeachment is um, a process uh, that, that, that the United States inherited from late medieval and early modern England. In practice, although we're now with um, the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton and, uh, and then of Donald Trump uh, twice, uh, it, it, it now seems something that's rather familiar. But in 1974, um, at that point, it only happened once to a president. It had happened in a few cases with judges, but only once to a president. And that was in quite exceptional circumstances in 1868. In 1864, in the presidential election during the, the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln had actually run for the second time as the National Union Party. And his vice presidential nominee was Andrew Johnson of Tennessee, who was a war Democrat. What what Lincoln had been trying to do was to get Democrats together with Republicans to, to forge a kind of a unified ticket to to complete the war. Now, when Lincoln is then assassinated, this leaves Johnson as president, a Democrat 
leading a Republican administration that, that, that contains many radical Republicans who are committed to the wholesale reconstruction of the South after the Civil War. Now, Johnson doesn't favour this. He, he, he favours something more conciliatory. And he he sacks the the Secretary uh, of, of War, Edwin, Edwin Stanton, and is is impeached and it's br- brought to a Senate trial. And in the Senate, so the impeachment begins, the process begins in the lower chamber after the president of um, of medieval England. And it begins in the House of Representatives, requires a, a bare majority to go through. There's then a trial in, in, in the Senate where a two thirds vote is, 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 is required for conviction. And uh, Johnson narrowly escapes conviction. That was the one and only case of presidential uh, impeachment. So it's, and as it happened in the extraordinary circumstances of the aftermath of a presidential assassination and the and the aftermath of an American Civil War. And, and so basically what was happening with Nixon uh, in 1974 was largely unprecedented. The It's the House Judiciary Committee that draws up articles uh, of impeachment. It employs a special legal team under uh, John Doerr to assist in this matter, a team that includes a very young Hillary Rodham, uh, later Hillary Rodham Clinton. What eventually happens is that in the in the summer of 1974, the uh, the House Judiciary Committee approves three articles of impeachment against uh, the president with uh, relation to uh, obstruction of of justice, abuse uh, of power and contempt of Congress for his rejection of um, uh, subpoenas. So what you have in the summer of 1974 is these two juggernauts sort of uh, proceeding Uh, towards the Nixon White House, one being the special prosecutor's investigation, having won in US versus Nixon access to additional tapes and also the impeachment process that had uh, worked its way through the the House Judiciary Committee uh, and was still to be considered by the House of Representatives itself. As it turns out, Nixon was not impeached which is very important for what happens next. Out of the the tapes that Jaworski had won from the White House was one from a few days after the burglary on 23rd of June 1972, a discussion between Nixon and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, in which they discuss leaning on the CIA to lean on the FBI to claim national security, um, invoke national security in, in the matter of in the, the Watergate burglary, um, which, which, which seemed plausible enough given given McCord's um, CIA connections, and that tape uh, was deemed to be the smoking gun that showed that right from the very early stages of the cover up, uh, Nixon was involved in it, despite his many subsequent denials of his involvement in the cover-up. So it's not just a cover-up. There's also, as it were, Nixon's cover-up of the cover-up 
or cover-up of his own involvement in the cover-up. And at this point, before the House has voted on impeachment, Nixon in August, early August 1974, uh, announces his resignation. And there's an important issue here. As I say, if there's a presidential pardon power, but it's not operative uh, in cases of impeachment. And basically, Nixon had worked out that he was certainly likely to be impeached by the House. And he was also aware when the smoking gun tape was publicised that his support in the Senate was dwindling. I mean, he, he, I think all the way through, he reckoned that he, he could probably win more than a third of senators. But after the smoking gun tape, his support dribbles away. It's very different from the sort of polarisation that we see in American politics at the moment. At this point, there was a recognition, even among hardline Republicans like Barry Goldwater, who was a, a self-proclaimed conservative extremist, even Goldwater goes to the White House and tells Nixon the game is up that isn't the support in, in the Senate. And so in August 1974, Nixon, Nixon resigns unimpeached. And this leaves him open to be pardoned. Is he pardoned by Ford or what happens then? The first thing Ford does as, as president is announce that our long national nightmare is over. But Ford himself was aware that that probably wasn't the case because would Nixon be prosecuted by the special prosecutor after the revelations of the, the smoking gun tape? It was clearly obstruction of justice, although he'd le left office, that he'd paid, as it were, a political penalty through resignation. Would he be, be tried through the criminal courts? And what Ford sees is that, that, that Nixon and the potential prosecution of Nixon and also potential appeals by Nixon and so forth would basically jam up uh, the media and political life for potentially um, the, next, the next couple of years. And so what Ford uh, does is a month after uh, Nixon's resignation is, is he pardons uh, Nixon using his constitutional uh, pardon power. But Ford was also keenly aware that the acceptance of a pardon implied an admission of guilt on Nixon's part. Non nonetheless, Ford does lose a huge amount of political capital uh, because of this. And I, I think I think at the time of Watergate, Americans were so inflamed about what had happened, about the abuses of power and, and, and for Nixon having lied to them for several years um, about this, that there's a real furore against Ford for what he'd done. But I think in the longer run, even Woodward and Bernstein, who were, who were critical at the time of what Ford had done, ha have come to see that actually it was a a wise piece of, of statesmanship on Ford's part that probably ultimately cost him the presidential re-election in 1976, when actually he lost quite narrowly when you drill down in, into the results. So that is Nixon resigned and pardoned. What are the longer term consequences of Watergate? 
Yes, well, I think Watergate cast very long shadows. If we return for a moment to the, the Saturday night massacre of the 20th of October 1973, the person who ended up reluctantly doing the dirty work, sacking Archibald Cox, the first special prosecutor, Robert Bork. Robert Bork, a few years later in 1987, is nominated by another Republican president, President Reagan, to Lewis Powell's swing seat on, on the Supreme Court. And Bork is overwhelmingly uh, rejected by the Senate, overwhelming in terms of Senate confirmation results. I mean, it's a 58-42 rejection, partly on the grounds of Bork's very conservative uh, judicial philosophy, but also there's, a, there's an undertow in the result. A, this is payback for having sacked um, the special prosecutor in the Saturday Night Massacre. Also, to prevent this kind of um, conflict of interest within the executive branch investigating itself, the Ethics and Government Act is passed in, in, in 1978, which includes one element of which is, is known as the Independent Council Statute that laid down special procedures for how a special prosecutor be uh, appointed by, by a panel of judges um, and also guaranteeing the the tenure of, of that independent uh, council or special prosecutor. And this independent council statute, the constitutionality of it is eventually challenged in a, a case. I won't go into the, the details of it, but it relates to subpoenas in a special investigation of the Environmental Protection Agency. In a case called Morrison versus Olson, the constitutionality of the um, independent council statute is questioned. It is confirmed by the Supreme Court on a seven to one decision. The Supreme Court argues that although potentially there were separation of, of powers issues here, the executive, legislative and, ju and judicial branches of, of government also at times, for pragmatic reasons, have to be coordinate and interdependent and therefore the independent council statute stood. But the, there's a very famous dissent in Morrison versus Olson by Justice Scalia. He said, he, he said that the um, independent council statute wasn't so much like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing as a, as a wolf in wolf's clothing, that there were lots of potential separation of powers issues here, and that the president, not the courts, should be in control of the executive uh, branch, including any special uh, prosecutor. And basically, Scalia, as a justice, was quite a, a formalist and was um, committed to the, as it were, the, the basic forms and patterns of the, of the separation of powers. And although he was in a minority, tiny minority in that seven to one decision in Morrison versus Olson, in the longer run, I think there's been a movement of opinion towards Scalia's dissenting opinion. In 1999, the, the independent council statute was allowed to, to lapse, partly because it basically seemed to create this kind of monstrosity within uh, the structures of, of government, as seen both in Lawrence Walsh's prosecution of the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s, and then 
Ken Starr's prosecution of what started out as the Whitewater Land affair in Arkansas and eventually somehow mutated into the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal. And uh, and basically because the Independent Council had no, there was no term limit, no limits on expenditure. And so it basically came to be seen as a as something of a monstrosity within the constitution. And so it lapsed. But the the current powers of a special prosecutor are now somewhat more precarious. They don't enjoy the same standing and uh, freedom from dismissal as under the Ethics and Government Act. And of course, this became something of an issue when Robert Mueller was special prosecutor uh, looking at uh, the events of Russian involvement in the in the 2016 presidential election. And th- there were various moments at which it looked as though Trump was going to pressurise uh, the Department of, uh, of Justice to repeat something like the Saturday Night Massacre. Thank you, Colin. That has been absolutely fascinating, both on the politics of the early 1970s and of the constitutional significance both then and since.